Christ wants you to be confident and to be authentic. By this we know that we are authentic. How can we be authentic followers if we deny Jesus and not ourselves? By not seeking and obeying nor loving others? By serving ourselves and not Jesus? We are a ship without a rudder, claiming to be a house built upon the rock. Let us know God and make Him known. Let us not walk in darkness, but in light, being sanctified and loving others selflessly. By this we know we are authentic followers of Jesus. All right. Well, good morning, church. We are going to continue, church. We've had two excellent services already. Am I? There we go. Uh, as you're looking up John, 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 14. I want to remind you from whence we've come. All right, we're going to talk about the true you today, but I want to remind you what we've studied the last several weeks. So our first John into the book of 1 John was 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And you remember we were introduced to the apostle John and his staunch defense against the uh, teachings of the Gnostics. Remember, they were coming into the church saying that there was salvation outside of Christ. Matter of fact, they were saying Jesus is not necessary for salvation, but there's a special knowledge, a secret knowledge that comes from, uh, comes from God, or, or there's a secret knowledge that would get you to God. We studied that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Remember, John talked about the fact that even though he was the last remaining original apostle, that he had walked with Jesus, that he touched him, that he'd heard him, that he'd seen him with his own eyes, and that we could rest assured that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. We looked at verses 5 through 10, where, where we looked at the essence of God, his purity, and his holiness, remember it says that God is light, and in, in him there's no darkness at all, none. We learned about authentic fellowship. We learned that we're all sinners. If we say that we don't have sin, then we're actually liars. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we, we learned about the Christ's role as our Savior and our advocate as our propitiation. Verses 3 through 6, we were introduced to the first of three tests that John's going to give us in this letter, tests to see if we're truly real followers of Christ, authentic followers of Christ. The first one was obedience to Christ's commands. And then last week, Aaron again led us through that second test of authentic Christianity. And that was that if we are true followers of Christ, we're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that leads us to our passage today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read it and you're going to go, that doesn't even fit with what John has been doing for us. There's a purpose behind it. We're going to talk about it. So 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 12 says this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, immediately there should be some things that jump off this page to you. And the first one is this, it's this, this timely pause 
that John has done in his gospel or in his, in his writing here in his letter. He started out with some very difficult truths. He's going to, next week we'll see, he's going to continue on with some very difficult truths. But he hits the pause button and he does it on purpose. You might look at this and think, well, here's this elderly apostle and he's kind of lost his train of thought. So he's, he's chasing a rabbit or he's gone off on some ta- tangent, but he hasn't. He has not lost his focus. Matter of fact, I believe that he's doing this purposefully. I believe that this is necessary. And quite honestly, I believe this is ingenious at what he's doing right here. Uh, David Jackman says this, this section of the letter is a break point at which John looks back on the instructions he's already given before moving into a more detailed set of warnings against the world and the false teachers. We'll see that next week. I think there are two reasons that he has had this, decided to have this timely pause. And the first one is this, it's meant to encourage. You know, we live in a world with a lot of discouragement uh, I, I see and hear tell of, of young people taking their lives. They can't get away from the discouragement. Uh, they post these things on, on social media and their friends make fun of them or whatever. And there's, there's just a lot of discouragement. And we need to be an encouraging people. We need encouragement in our world. One thing that I want to know when I stand before God is I've done everything I can in my earthly life to encourage other people. When I see somebody that does something good or sacrifices for the cause of Christ, I want to go to them and I want to encourage them. I want to praise them. I want to lift them up. Encouragement is necessary. Encouragement is needed. And remember what's going on in the church. You've got these false teachers that are coming in and you've got these Christians and they're young Christians. They haven't been Christians for very long. And these false teachers come in and they've got this pious arrogance about them and they're saying, you're wrong and we're right Jesus isn't the answer. This secret knowledge is the answer. So you've got these Christians that are confused. And, Paul, and John hits the uh, pause button because he wants to encourage them for a minute. He wants to remind them of some truths. Psalm 119, 28 says, encourage me by your word. Billy Graham, the great evangelist who's already gone on to be with the Lord said this, with an old head and a young heart. You can be a source of real strength to others who need your cheer and encouragement. You may not have the strength to do much more than that, but you can give an encouraging word. We feed on encouragement. It's important. It's necessary. And John knew this. The second reason I think he paused, not just to encourage, but I think he paused to remind. He wanted to remind his audience who they were. John Stott says this, and it's on the screen. He said, John has abruptly concluded his exposition of his second test. We learned about that last week. He does not mean to give his readers the impression that he thinks they are in darkness or that he doubts the reality of their Christian faith. It is the false teachers whom he regards as illegitimate, not the loyal members of the church. So what does he do? He digresses to tell them his view of their Christianity or their Christian standing. His purpose in writing is as much to confirm the right assurance of genuine Christians as to rob the counterfeit of their false assurance. So John has paused to remind them and to encourage them. So that's one thing that you see in here. It seems like it's out of place, but it's really not. Another thing that you see in these three verses is repetition. 
In these three verses, John says, I'm writing or I have written six times, just in three verses. He he repeats the phrase, children, young men, and fathers twice each in these three verses. And he repeats the same reasons for writing to the children, the young men, and the fathers multiple times in 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 these verses. Why is he doing that? You know, I grew up in a home, and I grew up in a Christian home, very godly parents. But when, when my dad or my mom said something, they just said it one time. It was said one time, and I was to hear that, and I was to act upon that. We weren't counting to three. There was not a repetition in, in what my father or my mother said to me. It was just accepted that if they say that, they want me to hear that, and they want me to do that. I grew up in a church that was like that. The preacher said it, we better do it because it comes from the truth of God's word. So it was a little bit of a struggle for me as I was looking at this repetition. Why, why God, does John have to repeat himself so many times? And then I realized we're just humans and repetition is necessary. Matter of fact, this is not the only place in the scripture where we see repetition. Matter of fact, the gospels The Gospels are repetitive in nature. Four distinct accounts of the life of Jesus. They contain many of the same details, yet their repetitiveness speaks to different audiences for greater understanding and for greater impact. Each Gospel written from a different perspective for the purpose of reaching a wider audience with a vastly different background. So we see repetition here. We see repetition in the gospel. We see numerous commands that are repeated. Matter of fact, we looked at one last week. Remember what John said last week? He said, I give you an old commandment, but it's a new commandment. You're scratching your head there. Is it old? Is it new? Yes, it's old and new. And that's commandment, that commandment is that we love one another. It's an old commandment with a new understanding is what Aaron shared with us last week. So we see warnings repeated. We see encouragements repeated. Repetition throughout Scripture, really repetition in life, serves to capture our attention. It serves to drive home a point. It's it's, it's as if John is saying, I'm going to pause from these hard truths because I want to remind you of some things. And I'm not going to remind you once. I'm going to remind you multiple times because I want you to get it. I want your attention. I want to drive home a point. So let me drive home a point about repetition. Let me ask the men only, men only in the congregation, what is tomorrow? Valentine's Day. One guy said, it's Monday. In the early service, I'm like, no, brother, it is Monday. It's Valentine's Day. Now, let me ask you a question, gentlemen, especially those of you that are dating and those of you that are married. How many times have you been reminded that tomorrow is Valentine's Day? Did I tell you that tomorrow is Valentine's Day? Let me tell you this. I've been married for 28 years, and it's kind of to the point where, you know, it is, it, it is to me, kind of just another day, right? It's just another day to spend some money. Let me give you a little pointer, men. If your girlfriend or your wife says, you know, you really don't need to do anything for me for Valentine's Day, that is a lie from the pits of you know where. You better do something and you better do it right. So I have, listen, I have asked my wife twice, what would you like for Valentine's Day? She told me twice the exact same thing. So I went out and purchased what I think my ears heard. Tomorrow, I will present her with what I think I was supposed to get her for Valentine's Day. 
And I hope that I should not have asked her three times. <laughs> Repetition is necessary. God understands that. We understand that. John understood that. So John is repeating these things because he wants to drive home a point. So as you read this, it seems out of place, but it's really not. He's taking a timely pause. There's a purpose for his repetition. And there's one more thing that kind of jumps off the page of these verses. And that's the value of all. He talks about children. He talks about young men. He talks about fathers. Now, ladies, don't think he's not speaking to you as well. Just because he talks about the male gender doesn't mean he's not concerned about females amongst us. It's for all of us. John's message is for all of us, for the young men, for the young women, for the fathers, for the mothers. And he wants to remind his readers how valuable, how valuable they are to God and how valuable they are to one another. There is, and let me pause and just teach you a little bit. There is a little bit of scholarly debate about what he means by children, young men, and fathers. Some scholars, not very many, but some think he's just speaking of their physical age. That when he's looking at the church, he realizes that he has children, he has young people, and he has older people in the church. That's true, but that's not where he's going. Some scholars think that he's just referencing only their spiritual age. So children are those that have just come to Christ. The Bible speaks of babes in Christ. Young men or young people, or those that have been Christians for a little while, but there's still a lot of spiritual maturing that needs to take place. And then there's the fathers or the mothers within the church. They've been Christians for a long time, and they're spiritually mature. And he wants us to know there's value in all of that. That's almost correct. Most scholars believe, and I think they're correct in this, not that I'm a scholar, but I just agree with it, that when he says children, and he says this multiple times in his letter. When he says children, he's referring to all believers, regardless your age, regardless your spiritual maturity. Remember, he's an old man. He's probably in his 80s. He's been walking with Christ for a long time. He's the last living original apostle. So he has earned the right to look at his congregation and call them children. And it's a term of endearment. So that's just, that's just believers within the body. But when he talks about the young men, he is talking about their spiritual um, maturity. And he's referencing, and we'll read it, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a little bit, a little more detail in a little bit. He is referencing those that are, that are fairly new in their walk with the Lord. They're not as spiritually mature as the Father. So you got the young men, they're Christians, they've been walking with the Lord for a while, but there's a lot of maturing that needs to take place spiritually. And then you have the fathers, you have the mothers, you have those that are in the church that, that are more spiritually mature. So he's, he's, he's striving to help them understand that they are of great importance, that they are much value. Everybody within the church has great value. So that leads us to the meat of our message this morning. And I've, I've entitled it the true you. You know, I'm not, I'm not a social media guy. I don't have Facebook. I don't have all of that stuff. It's not because I'm necessarily against it. I just, I just don't, I don't do it. Uh, my wife has it, so she'll inform me of things sometimes. But sometimes I, I'll look, because I have hers. I'll look and I'll, I'll see. I, I see only, only the good. You know, you're only posting what's good. You're only posting the best picture. You're only posting the best event. 
You're not, for the most part, you're not really posting what life is. You're not posting the true you. And I think God desperately desires, and I think our world needs to see the true us. Who are you really? When you, when you walk off that parking lot and come into this church, it would help me as one of the ministers in your church if you would just be who you are. Just be the true you. You don't have to put a mask on. You don't have to put a facade on. Just be who you are because I can help you spiritually when I know where you're at and I know who you are and I know what you're struggling with. I meet with men throughout the week and we talk about our lives and we talk about what's going on and we're really honest with each other and we're really putting ourselves out there. It's the true me. When you're there with me, that's the true me. That's, that's who I am. And that's what we need and that's what God desires. He desires to know the true you because he wants to fix those things that are broken. He wants to know the true you. So the first thing that John says about these authentic followers of Christ is this. He reminds them that they're forgiven. Verse 12, he says, I write to you, little children. Remember, that's all the believers. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It's because of what Christ has done on the cross. We're recipients of that forgiveness. We're recipients of that grace. But it's really for the glory of God. And friends, forgiveness is the fundamental experience of Christianity. It is the one thing that restores fellowship with the Father. And forgiveness comes through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. So it'd be wrong for me to assume that everybody in here today is a follower of Christ. It'd be wrong for me to assume that. So I'm going to take a pause from my message and I'm going to walk you through the gospel. I want to walk you through the good news of Jesus Christ because it's for you. Jesus Christ came and died for you. Jesus is offering you good news. Jesus is offering you forgiveness. Jesus is offering you grace. So God's word is clear that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's word is also quite clear that we are uh, we're deserving of death because of our sins. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is physical death, but it's also spiritual death. So when you see these two verses, I'm a sinner and what I deserve because of my sin is eternal damnation. We find ourselves in a tight spot, in a bad place, in a hopeless situation. And God knew that. Because God knew that, we have Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, will not perish, but have everlasting life. So motivated, motivated by love for you, motivated by love for you, God's son, Jesus Christ, died on a cross paying your sin penalty. In Romans 6, 23, the latter part of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's for his glory and for his honor, and it's free to you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So if we confess and we believe, then we will freely receive God's gift of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
And my question for you is, have you experienced that? Could John say that of you? I'm pausing because I don't want to remind you that you have received God's forgiveness. So let me help you grasp just how meaty that is, just how incredible the forgiveness of God is. So I want you to do something for me. I want you to think of the, of the worst sin you've ever committed, the most egregious sin you've ever committed, the worst thing that you've ever done. And I want you to visualize holding that sin in your right hand. Just, just visualize, I'm holding the worst thing that I've ever done. Your spouse may not know about it. Nobody may know about it, but just you and God, hold that in your hand. And then I want you to visualize all the other sins, all those little sins, all the sins that pile up and hold those in your left hand. So you've got these sins right now, you're okay because you're there, you're out there, you're amongst the crowd. But what if I called you up on stage with me and all of a sudden that sin that's been hidden all those years and those sins that have been hidden all those years and all the shame and all the guilt and all the remorse was here for everybody to see this egregious sin, these terrible sins, all your sins. And you stand before your peers and you're ashamed of what you've done. You're ashamed of who the true you is. And then all of a sudden the doors in the back burst open and it's Jesus Christ. And he's walking slowly down the aisle and he's coming towards the stage. And all of a sudden you're, you're in incredible fear that here's who I am and it's revealed before God and here's that sin and, and that sin and that shame and all of that. And you look and there's, there's these scars in his, in his brow. And you focus in on those scars and it hits you and you realize those scars in the brow from the crown that was thrust on his head, that's there because of this. And that's there because of that. And it's your sin, not his sin, that cost those scars. And he continues to walk down. He makes his way over here. And he's starting to come up the stage. And you're backing away because you're fearful. And you don't know why is he here? What does he want? And Jesus begins to walk towards you. And he begins to reach his hands out towards you. And you are frozen with fear because here's your sin. And here's your sins. And here's this holy and righteous God. And the scars in his hands, you see those. And that's because of you. And that's because of your sin. It's because of that. It's because of this. And the shame and the remorse and the guilt. And then God speaks. Jesus speaks. And he's speaking to you. And his eyes capture your eyes. And you've got this sin and you've got that sin. And Jesus says this. These scars that I bear, I bear because I love you. I have not come to condemn you. I have come to set you free. The penalty for the sins you hold in your hands, I have paid. If you will, I will not only remove the guilt, but I will also remove the shame and the remorse that you carry because of these. And you don't know what to say. And you don't know what to do. And Jesus moves, moves towards you to embrace you. And as he reaches in to embrace you, you notice that this is gone. And this is gone. And you wrap your arms around an ever-loving creator who was pierced and placed on a cross because of your sin. That's forgiveness. That's what God wants you to experience. And that's what John reminded his readers about. God loves you. God has forgiven you. And God has 
accepted you. Verse 13 says, I write to you children because you know the Father. What beautiful language. You know, my sin, this and that, it left me fatherless. But Jesus' death on the cross bought for me adoption in the family. You have been accepted. You know, I, I hear parents, Jared talked about his newborn and his two-year-old. I hear parents, sometimes they'll introduce their kids to me and they're just teasing, but they'll say, here's my oldest son and here's my daughter. And she was a surprise. She was a surprise. And you're like, I understand that. I know what you're talking about. And then I've heard parents say at times, not around their kids, but they'll be talking about their kids and they'll say, yeah, yeah, she was a mistake. I want you to hear something. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. You are not a mistake to God and you are not a surprise to God. God adopted you into his family. God loves you. Listen to this verse out of Ephesians chapter one, verse five. I'm gonna read it to you out of the New Living Translation. This is, this is God speaking about you. It says, God decided in advance to, to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to do it. You're not a mistake. You're not a surprise you have been chosen by God. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. Are you kidding me with this and this and what I cost you, your life and all, of the, all, that, you, all that you took for me on the cross and before the cross and you're gonna choose me? You know the true me, even as a follower of Christ, you know the true me and you're gonna choose me? Yes, God has chosen you. God has forgiven you. And because you are a child of God, because you are forgiven, because you are chosen, God has called you to grow. We talked about it a little bit, that John is referencing the spiritual maturity of those that are in the flock. Now, what's beautiful about you all, there's lots of things that are beautiful about you, but one thing that's beautiful is I look out, look out across this congregation and the other two that we had in the previous um, worship times, and I see lots of different spiritual maturities. I see some of you that are young in age, but you're spiritually mature. I see some of you that are older in age, but you're spiritually immature, and that's okay. Sometimes it's because you've just come to Christ. The beauty of, and, and, and John talks about this in here, the beauty of the, of the young father, the I mean, the beauty of the young man and the beauty of the father is you've got this young man, and how does John describe him? He describes him as strong. He describes him as being filled with the word. He describes him as being an overcomer of the evil one. So you've got these young people that are fresh and new, and they're striving out in our world, these, these, these young Christians, and there's vitality, and there's excitement, and there's encouragement. And some of you in this congregation, you're fresh and new in this thing called Christianity and it's changed your life. And you can't help but tell people. I don't have to tell you to go witness to people. You're just doing it because God's done an amazing thing in your life. And then there are those within the congregation who've been a Christian for a long time. I came to Christ when I was seven. So I've been a Christian for a long time. So there are those that have been a Christian for a long time. And sometimes 
sometimes we forget what it's like to be lost. We forget what it's like when you come to Christ. So we just go about our days knowing that we're fine, knowing that we're okay, knowing that we're, as John says, we, we know the one who is from the beginning. We know the truth. We're rooted in the truth. Things are going to come at us, but it's not going to uproot us. False teachers are going to come into the church, but they're not going to dissuade us. They're not going to persuade us. They're not going to lead us in different directions because we know the one who's from the beginning. And John says, God did that on purpose. We've got the young people in the church. They're strong. Sorry. They're strong. They love the Lord. They're excited. We've got the older people in the church. They're rooted and they're founded. So they come together and they make a manual Baptist church. And we penetrate the darkness in our community with the love of Christ because we know the truth. Show you something on the screen. You have any idea what that is? Those are the ages of your senior staff members. So when Brother Mark retired... And when Brother Todd was stolen away from us by the convention, I became the old guy. So you look, look, I, this, this last, last Sunday was my 23rd year of ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you so much for having me. I love this church. I'm going to stay forever. So 23 years of ministry here. It was my third, this is my 32nd year of doing ministry. I started my first youth ministry position when I was 19 years old. I'll be 51. I'm the almost 51 that's at the end. I realized this morning as I was looking over my notes, I went, my goodness, I've been doing ministry longer than half our senior staff has been alive. <laughs> you know what's amazing about how God pieces things together? I'm 51 years old almost at the end of the month. And I've been doing this for 32 years. And I'm just going to be very honest. I'm going to give you the true me. There are days I wake up on a Monday morning and I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I have poured my life into preparation for a message. I have delivered the message as best that I can with as much passion as I can because I believe it with every fiber of who I am. And God, I don't see anything. I don't see people broken. I don't see people going to the blue wall. I don't see people, I share the gospel, I don't see people saved. I talk about that forgiveness and try and help you visualize that in a very real way. And people are sleeping. I just wanna, I just, I just feel like I'm just, ah, I'm just banging my head against the wall and I'm done, I wanna go do something else. And then I go to staff meeting on Monday morning at nine o'clock. And there's a 21-year-old and a 23-year-old and a 27-year-old and a 29-year-old. And they're so excited and they're so grateful for what we have here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and the opportunities. And they're excited that God would call them to serve him. And I sit back and I go, shame on you, Scott. You have been blessed beyond belief. God's not done with you as a 51-year-old. So take some of that energy, some of that strength, some of that foundation that they have, some of that excitement for the truth of who God is and borrow that from them and use that in your ministry. And then in turn, give back to them some of the truths that you've learned over 32 years of ministry. And together, God takes the old and takes the young and he meshes them together and our average age is 35, about how old Jesus was when he died. And God does amazing things. 
through the staff of Emmanuel. And it's not just the staff, it's you guys. You are a vital part of what God is doing at Emmanuel Baptist Church. There's a thread of mentoring throughout those three passages that we read. The father and the child and the young men. So like I said, the old people investing in the young people, the young people investing in the old people. We need each other. We may not understand each other. There's sometimes I scratch my head when that 21 or 22 or 23-year-old says something and staff me, and I'm like, I don't even know what you just said. I don't even know if that's English. <laughs> but there's a lot of wisdom. So I listen, and we listen, and we discern the, the will of the Father, and we implement those truths. And you are valuable. You are valuable to the work of God in your family, in your workplace, in your school system, in your community. So one last question, and then we'll be done. Who are you really? Who are you really? Not who you make yourself up to be, but who are you really? John paused his letter and looked at the church and said, I want to remind you who you are. You are God's. You have been forgiven. You have been chosen. Now you are called to grow and you are called to go. And God says that to you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is so powerful. Father, I remember when I sat down to just begin preparing for this message, I'm like, what do you do with three verses? And he repeats himself. Father, you do amazing things with three verses. And it's necessary. I needed that. I don't know about anybody else, but I needed it, Father. So I pray that we would be honest, most importantly, with you. And Father, if, if there is somebody here that has not experienced that forgiveness that we visualized, oh God, what is it? What is it that they're holding on to that they think is more precious than your grace? Father, would you give them another opportunity? It may be their last, but would you give them one more today? One more opportunity to respond. Father, thank you. Thank you that we're not mistakes. Thank you that we're not even surprises. Thank you, Father, that you purposefully chose us to be your child. We don't deserve it, but you freely give it. And we praise you for that, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.